I'm Sean Haney, and this is Real Ag on the Weekend. Let's get real and get connected with the week that was in Canadian agriculture. Real Ag on the Weekend starts now. Welcome to Real Ag on the Weekend here on CJME 980 and CKOM 650. I am your host for the day, Lindsay Smith, and I am super pleased to be here. Uh, Sean Haney, your regular host, has had just an absolute whirlwind of a week. He was uh, in Louisville at the National Farm Machinery Show. He covered Canada's Ag Day in Ottawa, uh, and then he was out in Alberta covering some things there as well. And so... I get to be your host this weekend. And uh, yeah, so thanks for joining me here. As always, of course, you can hear this show, back episodes of the show, and anything else we've got over at realagriculture.com. You can download all our podcasts from there. Now, for this week's show, we've got some really fantastic coverage of Canada's Ag Day, as I mentioned. So Tuesday in Ottawa, in the nation's capital, there was the Future of Food event. And uh, Sean, got, so I don't know, five or six different interviews from there. And I've pulled a couple of them for today's show. Just uh, snippets of what was said. Definitely a huge focus on the potential that Canada has, that Canadian agriculture has, not just here at home, but for the world. But it wasn't all sunshine and roses. And I'm going to pull a bit of that audio from Murad Al-Khatib. He's, of course, the president and CEO of AGT Food and Ingredients out of Regina. And uh, he had some tough love that uh, he metered out for the crowd about, you know, just what Canada has to do to actually be a leader in the global food space. Uh, but, of course, before we get to that... We do have Ann Wasco of East End, Saskatchewan. She's going to join us for the beef market update here uh, right right away. And then for the tail end of the show, we've got Drew Lerner with his spring forecast. So Kelvin Hepner was in Winnipeg, Manitoba. He was at Crop Connect this week. I mean, what better way to spend Valentine's Day? Anyway, uh, he was in Winnipeg this week and spoke with Drew about whether or not we're going to see any sort of substantial return to moisture for the prairies and for Saskatchewan, of course. So uh, we'll hear that near the end. As always, as we get rolling on today's show, if you've got feedback, you can call that feedback line 1-855-776-6147. Leave us a message if you've got ideas of what you'd like to see covered on the show or uh, want you know to have your say on anything we cover. Would love to hear from you there. And of course, you can follow us on social media at Real Agriculture. Uh, really, just about any platform. You'll find us there. Just plunk us in the search bar. And there we are. Okay. Without further further ado, let's hop to my conversation with Ann Wasco with this week's Beef Market Update. So joining me, of course, is Ann Wasco of the Gateway Livestock Exchange. How are you, Ann? I am great. Good to be with you, Lindsay. Yeah, I know. Thank you, Sean. Okay. Um, he's busy, so we get to do this, and I don't yeah. mind. I really don't. It's a lot of fun. This is good. Yeah, it is. Okay, so let's uh, let's catch up. What did uh, What did the numbers do over the past few weeks? Well, I'm going to call this week's market in the U.S. a little bit of a breather market. We've had such a good run uh, in prices uh, through January and early this month. Uh, but this week we took a bit of a breather. So in the south, Texas, Kansas, markets were off 2 bucks. We'll call it 180 live. In the north, 179 to 180. So that's one to two lower. And if you're looking at the draft market in Nebraska, 287 delivered, uh, which is also a couple bucks lower. So 
a big run. Markets need to take breathers as they're moving, and I would call that one of these weeks. The cutout, that choice cutout, the wholesale price that we watch, it, at the end of the day, last night's cutout at 295 for the choice was the same as a week ago, but it's kind of been down and then up and the down. So it's funny, over a week, uh, a lot can happen, but here we are seven days later and it's the same as a week ago. Mm. The next month, if you're looking at wholesale prices, it's not usually the time for beef to really shine, if you will. So I, I expect that market to continue to be pretty choppy until we get truly into that grilling season. And on the price side, just to bring it back to uh, Western Canada, cash cattle picked up a little bit. 370 delivered, dressed um, up a couple of bucks from last week is what uh, Canfax reported, and uh, a few live sales at 219. F will be the feedlot. So, you know, a little bit better on the local market, but again, it has not gained the ground that the U.S. saw through uh, through January. So that's good to see. Mm-hmm. And I had mentioned I'd mentioned to you earlier, Lindsay, I wanted to do just a little bit of a update on where we are with uh, slaughter rates, um, you know, j- just into, so what are we, five, six weeks into uh, into the year. And fed cattle slaughter so far in 2024 in Canada is, so this is steers and heifers, down 2% versus last year. And cow slaughter is down 12%. So that's interesting because we did see, you know, an increase, a bump in cow kill uh, through 2023, but it's certainly starting off at a slower pace here in 24. Now, one can point to the weather. It was a very cold January, mm-hmm. likely had a, quite a bit to do with it, but nevertheless, we're sitting down 12%. And to round out that slaughter production kind of data numbers that I like to talk about, steer carcass weights last week, still pretty big, 983 pounds. If you look at for those seven, eight weeks um, of the month of, of the year so far, we're still running up 43 pounds from a year ago. So We've got a, and again, a a big reflection on what happened last fall, just with how good the weather was for feeding cattle in Western Canada. And uh, that is, and again, placing cattle, um, feeding them longer. Uh, They're in the yard longer. And so obviously we're looking at heavier carcass weight. So that's Mm. what's happened here. That that is a big number. Absolutely. Now the, the, the drop that, 2% 2% down on slaughter and 12% on cow slaughter. Um, definitely starting off slower. Where is that in relation to, say, five-year average? Do you have that that number? Is that more in line with what we typically see this time of year? It would be more in line. You're right, because we're looking at some COVID years in there and whatnot. So um, in, in terms of January, we were still looking at a small number. Just again, I'm going to lean on that weather as the key factor. Um, as to why even versus some of the previous years before that without COVID and some of the other bumps along the way that uh, we were looking at a small start to 2024 in terms of harvest rates. Mm -hmm. Okay, but that in conjunction with heavier carcass weights doesn't necessarily bode well. Um, We need to (laughs) need to keep rolling here. Although, as you mentioned, milder weather, the first half of the winter can, of course, mean easier gain. Um, So that, of course, has to play itself out as well in the market. Now, we do have some cattle on feed reports coming. What's the expectation there? Yeah, so the Alberta report, Alberta Saskatchewan report for February 1st will come out later today. 
And my expectation is that we'll see that January placement number considerably smaller again due to the weather that we had in Western Canada um, and the smaller auction market volume. So certainly that was the key factor. But, you know, I think this is going to be a trend as we go through the year simply because we have smaller cattle numbers, right? Mm. So at the end of the day, somewhere along the line, there's going to be fewer cattle placed on feed. And I think that's um, what we're, we're going to start to see. And same with that's going to bring our on-feed numbers down. If you're placing fewer, you're going to have a smaller on-feed population. And uh, as we go down the road in 2024, uh, we'll see smaller numbers as well. Now in the U.S., they report some uh, another week away, uh, but early expectations are also for the January placements in the U.S. to be down 15 or 16 percent, so a pretty pretty big drop. And again, that should bring that on-feed number. If you recall, January on-feed numbers were still above a year ago. Mm -hmm. I think even by the time we get to February 1, we're going to see those on-feed inventory numbers dropping below a year ago in both countries. So now I want to to pull it back to that, that point about the lower cattle numbers and, you know, Canada and the U.S. similarities in pulling back of that cow herd year over year and year over year and year over year, Uh, you know, Realistically, there are some signals. If you've got moisture, if you've got some feed, prices have been strong. The signal is to hold back heifers. But we're hearing from from some that they're just not sure that is the right move. Are we, what has to sort of line up in a crystal ball to actually rebuild a cow herd? Well, historically, and, and those comments are bang on from, from folks that are kind of relaying that back to you historically the two key drivers are mother nature moisture and profitability and so those two things have certainly turned or well, the one thing has certainly turned in the favor of uh, of profitability and depending where you live um the moisture piece has also improved so for those folks you know they're certainly looking at okay costs are up you know obviously across mm-hmm. the board whether you're you're a, a, a cattle producer or a, a, a crop producer, you're looking at higher costs. And those aren't necessarily going away. And from a cow-calf perspective, there's really no one else to pass it along to. So there has to be some confidence that those higher cattle prices that we're seeing are going to last for some time. And I think as, as and I think that'll just, as time moves on and we see this market continue to stay strong in 24, 5, maybe even longer, that, that confidence is there. So I know it's a little, everybody's going to be in a different boat in terms of, you know, how they view that, where their position is in terms of making that step for restocking or rebuilding or retaining heifers, however you want to look at it. But um, I, I think the pieces are certainly there as long as, especially those areas that still need the moisture, mm-hmm. they still need to see it. But that confidence piece, because costs are so high, we, we need to feel confident. So I'm, I'm not. I, does that just take some time um, to to prove it through? I I can't predict that one, Lindsay. But mm-hmm. um, that I think is a missing piece for sure. That confidence piece. Well, and we certainly haven't seen necessarily widespread return of moisture either. I mean, we are talking about some areas exactly. with an improvement, but not necessarily widespread. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, it's it's that improvement over time for both the profitability piece and the moisture piece that are really going to take uh, the difference. That being said, of course, we know we can't just create heifers overnight either. So uh, the cattle industry is definitely, it's a long game. It's not a, it's not a yeah, short term. Exactly. Yeah, for sure. Exactly. All right. So it will, it will take some time in both directions. So yeah, it'll be uh, it's going to be a fun year. Let's put it that way. 
<laughs> well, let's hope uh, moisture returns to the West where everybody needs it. And soon it will be a discussion of where you put all this hay. Uh, let's try that one on for size. Okay. And Wasco, okay. thank you so much for joining me on the Beef Market Update this week. Okay. Thanks. Talk soon, Lindsay. As promised, we head now to Kelvin Hepner's conversation with Drew Lerner of World Weather Inc. For Real Agriculture, I'm Kelvin Hepner. We're at Crop Connect 2024 in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and pleased to be joined now by Drew Lerner of World Weather Inc. And Drew, of course, lots of questions about what spring is going to bring here in Western Canada. Large areas of uh, the prairies are, of course, dry. Uh, a lot of that you talked about today uh, depends on the El Nino-La Nina transition that is uh, that is underway right now. That's right. That's right. El Nino is on its way out. It should go away fairly quickly. That's going to open the door for a little bit of moisture this spring. Not a lot because the 18-year cycle is not going to promote a lot of moisture. It's not going to support it, uh, but there will be opportunities for more moisture. We've already seen a little bit of this, and as we go forward now, we'll probably see a little bit more of it. Uh, the, the issue is uh, whether or not La Nina will kick in and do so quickly enough to change our weather patterns. And in the past, when we've moved from an El Nino to a La Nina in a short period of time, the impact on the prairies is usually fairly significant with rains widespread. Uh, that would be, in this case, later in this growing season. Uh, but if we transition slowly, uh, we'll still have some benefit from the moisture, but just may not be quite as abundant. Uh, but either way, the combination of losing El Nino and maybe going into a La Nina can be helpful to us. Okay. You mentioned uh, the 18-year cycle as well. That's another uh, pattern that you're looking at, and that would bring us back to 2005, 2006. We won't talk about the 18-year uh, period what would be 18 years before that though yeah yeah that's right uh, that was 1988 that you're hedging on uh, yeah it is one of the 18-year cycle year members but what's interesting is that all of these 18-year cycle years all seem to have a little bit of a drier bias in the middle of north america for the summer for sure and in the spring for the u.s as far as the plains in the western uh, midwest uh, it's a very interesting uh, anomaly that shows up there and kind of interesting also down in the states that if uh, we do have a La Nina, that La Nina will help to enhance the drier and warmer scenario that's already in the 18-year cycle down there. But for the prairies, it's a different story. Uh, you know, we've got uh, an environment here that will bring us kind of a mix of weather this spring. We are not going to fix Alberta, southern Alberta, uh, with any weather event this spring. We'll have, don't get me wrong, we're going to see some opportunities for moisture, but we're not going to take care of that long-term moisture deficit, and we're still going to have low water supply there for the irrigation, uh, and so that's going to be an issue. But as we go forward into the summer, the environment should become a little bit more favorable for a greater amount of moisture to come into play for southern Alberta. Uh, I think at the moment it looks like northern Alberta is probably more favored for a, an abundantly moist summer uh, over that of the south, but it's still early in the game. So we'll see what happens. But I do think that improvement is in store for just about everybody. Okay. Improvement, but not maybe, like you said, fully restoring our water, our moisture deficit. Absolutely not. Not out in the southwestern parts of the region. Palliser's Triangle will still have some challenges this spring. I fully expect us to have some timeliness rain. You know, we had a little bit of that last spring, uh, but it, the rains were so erratic and uh, there was so much warmth there was there too that we just fell behind the eight ball and never got out of it. I don't think we'll have that kind of warmth this spring, uh, but I do think the rains will be erratic. It will be greater volume of moisture than what we saw last year, but still 
you know, hit and miss type and uh, is still leaving us crying for more. Uh, but I do think we'll be able to get into the fields. And uh, But it, it, it's going to be another one of those years trying patience for the Palosos Triangle area. Okay. I think I saw a local meteorologist say this is the 25th day where we've had at least five degrees above normal temperature here in, in this part of the world. What, what's your explanation for this abnormally warm winter that we've seen in, in much of North America? Yeah, a lot of it has to do with El Nino. Uh, El Nino was a moderately strong event. Uh, If you go back in history and look at all the El Nino events in the past, they've always been warmer biased in the western part of the nation. Uh, So that was primary. Uh, But in addition to that, some of these temperatures have been even farther above normal than what you would even expect with an El Nino. Some of that came from the 18-year cycle, uh, and some of that may be kind of influenced from what happened uh, from the volcano that erupted in 2022 where there was moisture put into the stratosphere, and that's... uh, preventing the earth from cooling down as much as it would normally. So that volcano is still affecting global weather patterns right now? I believe it is, uh, but you know we we don't have a lot of data to make comparisons with. Um, this volcano uh, in 2022, two years ago, uh, was the biggest event, volcanic eruption in modern times, and there was you know even bigger than Krakatoa, uh, but it was a non-populated area. But the, the point of this is that uh, you know, we did take uh, atmospheric measurements from this volcano, but we have no other volcano that was even c- comes close to comparing it to, and, and let alone have any data for it. So we really don't know. And I can sit here and make up all kinds of stuff, and you can't tell me I'm wrong. So, yeah. <laughs> what what was it? The moisture vapor was was it 36 miles into the atmosphere? Yeah, when this uh, volcano erupted, it, it, it did shoot a water vapor and particulate matter 36 miles up into the atmosphere and uh, added 10% moisture to the stratosphere where it's normally very dry. And that moisture up there has uh, set the stage for keeping the heat from escaping from where we live in the troposphere. All right. Well, good to see you in person again, Drew. Thanks for your time. Absolutely. Thank you for the opportunity. Have a great day. Well, it's not all bad, I suppose, as Drew Lerner says. Uh, erratic rain, maybe not ideal, uh, but looks like a somewhat improved picture for some parts of Saskatchewan and uh, the greater prairies overall. So uh, we'll have to see if that comes about. Here we are, middle of February, and certainly uh, seeding time will be here before we know it. And uh Definitely, I know that so many of you need that decent moisture. Uh, I heard someone say this past week, you know, snowfall doesn't really matter anymore. It's all about springtime moisture and, of course, in season. And I found that really interesting. And and partially, is that because we've got so little snowfall in some areas? Or is it because we're just so far behind on the soil moisture recharge? Snow just disappears once it warms up. Really interesting scenario there. Would love to hear your thoughts on, on how you consider snowfall accumulation into the soil moisture picture for seeding. Uh, as, as always, of course, you can send us that feedback via 855-776. 6147. All right, as promised, joining me now on the show is Murad Al Khatib. He's, of course, president and CEO of AGT Foods and Ingredients in Regina. He also spoke at Canada's Ag Day. Sean Haney sat down with him to talk about what his message was and what is Canada's role to the world. You know, Canada's importance is actually growing. And, you know, when we turn around and talk about that affordability and the food inflation, Food inflation and the price of food is high on the minds of every foreign government in the world. And I think that, you know, we recognize that the lack of arable land and water 
is the two scarcest resources in the world. And Canada has an abundance of those resources. And, you know, as world economies grow and our economy is not growing as fast, we need something to make sure we're very relevant. And food and agriculture is really that uh, key weapon, you know, that Canada has. So we're, we're a societal solution, you know, to that food insecurity. And we certainly have a more reliable production system than almost any other jurisdiction in the world. You know, we're getting colder as it's getting to harvest. We're not getting hotter. And that gives a lot more tolerance to drought and a lot more reliability on crop. And I think that, that that's, you know, kind of a, a high level importance is that land and water availability. So this is how we see ourselves, right? I, I, you just said it, and I, I've heard it from others that, you know, Canada has this massive opportunity to play this big role. As you talk to customers, people around the world, is do they see Canada that way, or is there a gap? Well, definitely they're seeing Canada that way. I mean, you know, again, I had a very proud moment a couple of months ago. You know, some of the very first trucks that rolled through the humanitarian corridor to Gaza were AGT trucks, you know, taking, uh, you know, Canadian products to the Palestinian refugees. You know, when I look at our refugee relief programs, government procurement programs, Algeria, Iraq, Kuwait, Egypt, you know, the governments of the world are looking at Canada as a reliable source. It's a direct source, direct to the farm. It's a reliable source year after year after year as they fight food inflation, as they go to subsidize distribution of basic commodities to stabilize, you know, their uh, their growing in food, uh, food insecurity. You know, these are, again, you know, part of the world looking at Canada as that societal solution. And, you know, we've taken a view that a Canadian company, uh, you know, that AGT has become, we have to have global supply chains. We have to be linked. We have to have, you know, freight options out of Canada, both in container and in vessel. We have to have warehouses, processing facilities, repacking facilities in key jurisdictions like Turkey that is close to the refugees and close to the, you know, conflicts uh, that we're seeing around the world. So Canadian connectivity to global value chains is a big part of that societal solution. And, uh, you know, again, that's something that we're trying to play a role in and something that, you know, you see a number of other Canadian companies playing into today. You know, one of the things that does concern me is, and it's not in all countries that we're dealing with, but there is somewhat of a more political flair to talk about being protectionist. And as a, as a company or as a country like Canada that is very, very export reliant from a GDP perspective, and, and you've talked about the opportunities in front of us, how, how big of a of threat is protectionism to Canada's ability to deliver on this, you know, seizing the moment in terms of fulfilling some of the, the opportunities with global food security? I think, I think we have to recognize one thing. Agriculture is the most political business in the world in that governments all over the world have an obligation to protect their farmers. And so, you know, domestic agricultural policy is always clashing in many cases with food insecurity and food inflation. So, you know, imagine you're a foreign government wanting to keep prices high to benefit your rural economy where a lot of the votes are in a lot of these countries. And at the same time, you're fighting food inflation. So that's, you know, kind of the, uh, the clash of policy that we end up, uh, you know, facing. And I think that, you know, the key for Canada is to have a diversified set of markets. We can't be so reliant only on China and India, you know, as major markets for our agricultural commodities. We have to have a basket 
so that if one large country pulls out, we have to have another way to access that market. Let's look at the canola crisis in China. You know, anyone who thinks that a lot less canola went into China during the canola crisis from Canada isn't looking at the trade flows. Our trade went to the roof in the UAE, and our canola was going there, and canola oil from the UAE was going to China. Okay, so, you know, again, global value chains insulate us against the geopolitical and policy changes that we see. Look at the India policy. You know, this year, first year, peas were reallowed for import from January to March. Why? They need the product. You know, so we're going to see kind of a hybrid policy. We're going to see, I think, more markets reacting like Turkey, where they restrict imports from May until September every year at the time of their crop. And so they do that to protect their domestic ag. Their prices are high during those periods. And then they allow import to regulate prices for food security and food inflation. So we're going to see kind of hybrid policies that are going to be balancing those two policy objectives. But the key is, Sean, we can't put all our eggs in, in one or two baskets because then those governments have too much impact on our agriculture. Yeah, well well put. Now, I know that, uh, you know, it's no secret, Murad, you're a, a very influential person in, in all of this space in, in the Canadian market. And people listen to what you're saying. Let's just say the prime minister invites you into a cabinet meeting and says, OK, Murad, we hear you. Great opportunity in front of us. What do we need to do as a country? What, what are you telling them? Well, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm fortunate I've had the opportunity to sit with the prime minister recently and, and talk about the opportunity in agriculture. And, you know, I think that, you know, there's, there's a strong recognition across all party lines, which I think is the best part of where agriculture sits today. Whether you're a liberal or you're a conservative, you know, today there's a recognition that agriculture is a sector that is delivering immediate economic growth and opportunity for Canada. You know, when I chaired the National Strategy Table for Agriculture and Food, we set the target to take exports from 45 billion to 85 billion by 2023. The sector met the target in 2021, two years ahead of our target. And when we said 85 billion, it was a very lofty target is what people thought. So, you know, how many sectors of our economy can deliver 40 billion of new economic output in a short three-year period. So there's a recognition that it's about jobs and economic opportunity. The second thing is, is that as we look at the new green, clean economy, agriculture is a major polluter. Okay, so don't get worried because I'm in agriculture. We're also society's solution to climate change. We're one of the major solutions. So when we take digital agriculture and we put it over top of, you know, smart fertilization, zero minimum tillage, and data-based precision farming, the carbon intensity of agriculture in Canada with the scale of our agriculture has a massive opportunity to decline. So we are in a position where not only are we a societal solution to food security, we're also a societal model for climate change and sustainability. And I think that's gonna bode well. And that's what I would tell the prime minister. And I actually say, if I was prime minister for a day, I would invest a hundred billion dollars over the next three or four years to improve the trade infrastructure of Canada because we have to move goods to market. And when we look at, you know, the Western Canadian economy, agriculture, critical minerals, and the energy sector are major drivers of the, you know, overall economic well-being of all Canadians, not just those of us in Western Canada. 
Yeah, you can have customers around the world, but if you can't get the product to them when they want it in time, then you, you've got a, a major gap. Absolutely. I, I mean, this is all about reliability. It's all about yeah. all the things that we need. So, you know, trade infrastructure is something that, you know, I think government has made some small steps in, but, you know, again, we need to do more. And, and we know this is th- there's an opportunity here. I, I think, too, we also need to make sure we're fighting complacency. Like, because there's a trap here where we're like, ah, oh, we're awesome. We, we've got, you know, we're, we're the breadbasket. You know, we've got all this, this, this opportunity in front of us. We need to fight complacency and continue to charge ahead to make sure that we do seize this, right? Yeah, I think that there's, you know, here, here's where I think we've got a strong defense there is that our farmers have proven time and time again, Sean, that they are early adopters of technology. And so, you know, again, as long as that innovation pipeline continues to move along, you know, farmers are showing how quickly they can commercialize. I mean, we've taken two kilograms of seed and turned it into 200,000 acres of a new pulse, as an example. Like, yeah. again, you can't do that in other countries. So, you know, again, that's where I have an optimism that complacency won't come because of work ethic and because of that early adopter of technology mindset. And the family farm today is changing. I mean, the scale continues to grow. And, you know, again, I haven't seen so many young faces, you know, MBAs, uh, college educated, and, uh, you know, very, very intelligent business people running uh, Canadian farm family businesses today. That's going to help us. Well put. And for this last segment, we go to my conversation that I had with John Barlow. He's the MP for Foothills, Alberta. He's also the ag critic for the Conservative Party of Canada. And I caught up with him to ask about the status of Bill C-234 and also where he sees Canada going in agriculture and where he sees this Liberal government going wrong. You know, they've asked me to, to focus on Canada's role uh, agriculture when it comes to you know global uh, global trade. I think that's a very uh, uh, important topic right now as uh, we see agriculture as a very important tool uh, for us to rebuild Canada's respect uh, globally, but also certainly rebuild our economy as we come out of a, a what's going to be a very difficult financial time. Um, but I think the, the most important message of that is there is incredible opportunities for agriculture to have an important role. Um, but unfortunately, our, our current government, I think, is taking us down the wrong path for our ability to meet uh, that potential. So I think this is a critical crossroads where uh, as government has to make a decision. Are we going to um, you know, follow that European model of, of activism, uh, ideology, and not making science-based decisions? Or are we going to pick the path where we're basing our, de- our decisions on innovation, science, data and what's best for Canada and what's best for our global customers. I'll editorialize a little. It's not working great for the EU right now. Um, anyway, so but that's that's my own slide. Okay, so now, but of course, Parliament is back sitting. Bill C-234 is in the works. We're not necessarily seeing a lot of action here as far as moving it forward. How do you see this playing out moving forward? Yeah, unfortunately... Um, you know, it's back in the Liberals' court for the most part. Uh, we are trying to get it uh, on the table as often uh, as we can. So we've been successful that way. We've had it up for two hours of debate already. But as long as the Liberals put up speakers, they can drag this out for as long as they want. Uh, so our, obviously our argument is, you know, this passed the House of Commons with, you know, very strong support of all the opposition parties. This has already gone through the Senate. Um, you know, stop, stop fighting what clearly 
parliamentarians, elected officials, and Canadian farmers want. Um, but obviously, they are not going to let this go. Uh, but uh, we are not giving up the fight. Uh, we know this is an uphill battle. Even if we get to get it to a vote in the House and it passes, it goes back to the Senate. Uh, so, you know, the shenanigans could start all over again. Uh, really frustrating, I know, for, for Canadian farmers who were so engaged um, in the, the push to get 234 across the line. Um, but unfortunately... The Liberals are, are refusing on this one to put a carbon tax carve out for farmers, despite um, the financial benefit that this would, would give farmers. But but certainly uh, for us to uh, try and lower food prices for Canadians, uh, ensure you know more farmers we have, more product, higher yield, cheaper prices. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, there's also, you know, the the option potentially of accepting the amendment and moving it forward but that doesn't that's not necessarily first choice is that something you could see moving on and moving it forward so that you at least get something on the table or is it all or nothing yeah i I think preferably certainly we'd rather have it in, in its original form without the amendments um you know we have had some discussions is it can we move it along if we drop the the amendment on taking out uh heating and cooling of barns. I think we could live with the sunset clause if, if we had to. Um, obviously, our thought is we're going to be in government <laughs> by that time and we will get rid of the carbon tax entirely. Uh, but if that's what it takes, you know, a little bit of uh, negotiation, some compromise on our part to, to to expedite this through the process, I think we're open to that. Um, but certainly the, the feedback we've had from uh, from Canadian farmers is they want that heating and cooling of barns element as part of the bill. And, and really, that's, you know, that's half the bill. And so to, to eliminate that would be, um, you know, negating a, a real important aspect. But, but let's be honest. The only reason that amendment is in there it has nothing to do with, you know, that there are other alternatives for heating and cooling of barns. This was a way for the Liberals and Liberal-appointed senators to delay and stall this bill. That's really all it is. They wanted an amendment. They didn't care what the amendment was. Um, so this isn't about uh, you know what's right and what's wrong. This is a way for them to just put um, wrenches in the wheels of, of uh, this bill. And, and again, it's really unfortunate because this is an element where you've seen, as you, as you know, Lindsay, it's very rare for all agriculture commodity groups to come together in a united voice, but they are on this particular issue. Uh, so for the Liberal government to ignore that um, for an ideological argument uh, is really, really frustrating. And with that, we've wrapped up another episode of Real Ag on the weekend. Of course, as always, you can head on over to realagriculture.com. You can download this as a podcast, or you can listen to past episodes and check out all our other coverage there as well. From all of us here at Real Agriculture, cheers, have a wonderful week, and uh, Sean Haney will be back in the driver's seat next Saturday here on CKOM 650 and CJME 980. Have a great week. Cheers, everybody.